gather together around your word. I ask, Father, for us to have ears to hear, for us to set aside the distractions, for us to know that that your word is for us um, and that um, it is powerful. We want to infuse your word in our hearts, and we want to reflect you, Lord. So ask your blessing on Dallas as he comes forward to deliver that word to us, and our blessing on our, our time together, in Jesus' name, amen. Dallas Shaw. All right, I haven't tested this. Can y'all hear me well? Okay, uh, I just, all I can tell you is to brace yourselves. <laughs> this is what it's like inside my brain every day. So uh, that's what the slides are going to be like. If you're prone to seizures, uh, this could be an issue. <laughs> but I uh, just want to start with prayer. Dear blessed God in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, for, uh, for, for revealing your word to us, Lord. There is no other religion where the author of it lives in their hearts of its practitioners, the people that follow. So please be with us time. Let us not be like people hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. We love you and we ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so reading from God's word. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 through 20. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything illuminated or everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music to you from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so I took four big things out of this. Uh, one, darkness, or fruitlessness, darkness, uh, drunkenness, or, or being filled with the Spirit, okay, and light. And one of the key parts here is I think that in order to understand how powerful and important the light is, we have to understand just how bad the darkness and fruitlessness is. So starting off with that, we have this word akarpos uh, in the Greek. And again, getting to do my uh, the study on this thing, you understand that it means without fruit, barren not yielding what it ought to yield. And we think about this when we talk about Jesus, when he mentions the, the tree of the, or the fruit that's barren fr- born from a tree, that a good tree can't bear bad fruit, a bad tree can't bear good fruit. But what's important and what's amazing is that you also see in Mark 11 where Jesus says that the expectation is period that a tree would at least bear fruit. And specifically, he talks about cursing the fig tree that when the master comes or when the author comes, that it's not bearing any fruit or not bearing the fruit that it should. And more than that, we see this idea of fruitlessness, being destitute of good deeds or being a person that contributes absolutely nothing to other people. We also see it as that seed that's thrown among the, so- the, the weeds and the thorns that's strangled by the cares of this world or strangled by, the des- strangled by the desire of wealth and produces no fruit, okay? And then lastly, we see this idea of false teachers, which are autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. I mean, this is some pretty significant language 
when it's talking about this idea of fruitlessness, then it adds to that, this idea of darkness. And so we see the Greek word skotos, which, again, is darkness, gloom. The interesting thing is, is in doing the, the reading on this word, is that it's the power to render men bold to commit crimes, right? And then we add to that this idea of chosek, or the Hebrew word for this that we see in Genesis 1, which is literally, it's darkness or dark. Okay, no big surprise there, but its connotation is misery, destruction, death, ignorance, sorrow, wickedness, that there's absolutely nothing noble about it. And then we carry that all the way to our modern usage of the word dark, which is the absence of light, or the total or partial absence of light. So where can darkness exist? Darkness can only exist in the absence of light, and that's going to be important here in a minute. So how bad is the darkness, and how severe the punishment for unfruitfulness well, this kind of this kind of struck me is that there's no less than three times in uh, Mark or excuse me in Matthew where it starts talking about this idea of outer darkness or the punishment of outer darkness, and it talks about that in Matthew eight, where it's talking about the subjects of the kingdom that reject the king, they're bound together with their hands, they're cast in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then it mentions it again in Matthew twenty-two, where it's talking about the wedding attendees who are not properly dressed. And we know that that relates to putting on Christ and refusing to put on Christ, but coming to the wedding banquet. Nevertheless, what, are they, what happens to them? They're bound and thrown into outer darkness. And this word for outer in the Greek is outer, utter, or utmost, complete, total darkness. Okay? And then we see it in Matthew 25. And again, this one's striking to me because it's talking about the unprofitable servant, the one that gets drunk, the one that beats the other servants while the master is away. He's bound, thrown in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what, what that sends to me is that what amazes me about this is these aren't express enemies. These aren't declared enemies of the king or the master or, 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 the, or the savior, right? These are fake friends. These are fake servants or fake uh, subjects or people that should or came to the wedding ceremony but refused to put on Christ. That's kind of, that's daunting. Then it mentions other examples where it's talking about false teachers that blackest darkness is reserved for them. It talks about uh, Judas when he betrays Christ, that that's the hour and the power of darkness. And then it finishes up here with who we're wrestling against, the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. So again, it, it brings this up, and it's pretty significant and pretty severe on it. But one that's been really, uh, I don't know, Convey, or on my mind in the past few weeks uh, since I've been reading this is this idea of Proverbs 4.19. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not even know what it is that causes them to stumble. And I'll be honest with you, before I came to Christ, that was me. You know, I, I would stumble all the time, and it was amazing. I was like, why do I keep doing this stuff? And it was hard to figure that out. And I see it in my extended family, the people I love intensely. And you can see them stumbling, and, and you're like, well, I can see it right there, but they can't. Okay, so what are we called to do in relation to this? Well, there's this word, egleko, okay, to expose, reprove, rebuke, discipline, to show it to be guilty. But here's the part is it's not a spiritual gift, you know. I have the, the spiritual gift of exposing other people's sin. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I'm not sure that, I don't remember, I'm not sure that's one of the gifts, okay. But it tells us that we need to be radical, that we need to be ruthless with our sin first. That in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, it talks about this idea that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive them. 
Then it goes into James 5.16 that we're told to confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed. So we're supposed to deal ruthlessly and radically with it. And what does that do? That exposes the world's sin. So we see it there in Matthew 5, 16, where it's talking about this idea that let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and they praise your Father in heaven. And what does that do? Then it goes further in Hebrews eleven seven, where it talks about Noah. And it says that Noah, uh, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So we don't go out and we don't purposely condemn anyone. We condemn the world by showing up, by simply dealing radically and ruthlessly with our sin. Or we, we provide an alternative to death and darkness that exposes the sin and exposes darkness for what it is. So what's the alternative? The alternative is light, okay? But to understand that, I think it's important that we understand how the Bible entertains or addresses the idea of light. So there's two. They, in the Old Testament, the same word could be used as a noun or a verb. To light or to kindle, to illuminate, or light itself or firelight. But it reaches its fullest expression in the New Testament, okay, when we get to Christ. And specifically, it's, it's, it's the manifestation of God's self-existent life. It's divine illumination to reveal and impart life through Christ. So let's start at the beginning. Where do we see it first? We see it in Genesis 1. We're the same place that we see darkness for the first time, right? And we see it, and what's amazing about it is it's created. Light is created before a source of light is created. And I think that's important because, again, even from a natural scientific perspective, is that this used to be a means by which you would critique the Bible. Hey, look, it was created out of order. Clearly, the Bible must be wrong. Except the scientists now identified that light exists independent of a natural source of light. So that's in a natural sense. Okay? But what is that, match, uh, that, that nature of light? Okay? So we look at it, even physical light. We know that there's two types. There's illuminescent and there's incandescent. Incandescent is that light that's produced by heat, like the light that comes from the sun. Then there's luminescent, that light that's produced by some kind of a biological or biochemical reaction that's not produced by obtaining or generating heat, like a firefly. But the question that, that really sticks with me is, what manner of light is it that was at the burning bush? Okay? When Moses describes it as a fire, right, so incandescent light, but then it also didn't consume the bush, so it would be luminescent light, right? So we know that it's something unusual, something unique, something non-physical, right? And we see it, I think, in its fullest expression when we get the New Testament in who? In Christ, that Jesus is the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world, but that's not the amazing part. The amazing part to me is that he's called us to be the light of the world also. Specifically, we come here as the light of life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's with God in the beginning, and through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to all men was coming into the world. So three key words that come out here is this idea of word. Jesus is the word, the logos, the full, complete, total understanding of God, the life. Jesus is the life, and that word and the life are together. 
and that word and that life are also the light. They're near, syn- uh, near synonyms, okay? So Jesus is the light of the world, and he tells us as much in John 8, 12, where he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what's amazing to me about this is the word that he uses for the world is the Greek cosmos. And what's great about that is it could just as easily be rendered cosmos, universe, world. So Jesus is the light of the world could just as easily be rendered Jesus is the light of the universe. Now that's amazing to me, but it's not the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing is somehow we're wrapped into this. So are we just reflectors of that light? Or are we producers of the light? And I think it goes back to this idea of the word. So we're told in Jeremiah 31, in a parallel passage in Hebrews 8, when God's on there, he says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. So he takes that logos, the word life, he takes the light, and he writes it on our heart. This isn't something that exists outside of us. We don't merely, we do start by walking in it, but then we begin producing it. And Jesus tells us as much in Matthew 5, 13 through 15, where he says, you, we, are the light of the world. And again, rendered uh, the cosmos, the light of the universe. Okay? A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket. So, if light, in this case, is used both literally and metaphorically then it's pro- to describe what, what's produced out of our life, then it's probably wise for us to understand what the meaning of the metaphor is. So, what does natural light do? Well, one of the things it does is it kills germs and bacteria. So, through a process of ultraviolet germicidal irradiation, I looked that up, by the way, uh, it kills germs, right? You see it in industries. They use the two literally cleanse uh, tools to cleanse uh, medical or surgical tools, right? And the sun produces enough radiation down on earth to kill all the bacteria and all the people on the earth, right? Except we have the atmosphere and the ozone that protects us from it. It also has the power, right, through focused laser light to amputate, to extract metastasized uh, cells, tumorous cells through a process called stereotactic laser ablation and in the heart called transmyocardial laser uh, revascularization. I took weeks to memorize that just so it sounded awesome. Okay, but the point is it can use focused laser light to amputate tumorous cells. We can also use focused sunlight can burn and melt any material on the planet. Lightning can vaporize metal. Light can also be used to transmit messages. You look at optical fiber, the width of a hair with incident light rays passed through it can pass enormous distances without a midway transfer station and pass information. And obviously, it can light the area around it. It can illuminate things that are going on around it. Well, if that's the case, then what's the use of the metaphor in spiritual life? Number one is that God's light, God's word, Christ's light, Christ's word in our life has the ability to kill sin while it's still germinating, provided we don't act as an ozone and dampen it. God's word has the ability, right, to surgically remove metastasized, tumorized, ancient sin in my life and the lives of our family. Right? provided we wield it surgically. It has the ability to melt hearts 
of stone, iron, of, of, of ice, provided we use proper amounts of focused sunlight. That was a little pun there. And then it also carries message. And uh, again, we've been reading through C.S. Lewis again on Saturdays, and it brings up this point that our lives may be the only gospel that people, that a non-believer may ever read, the only Bible that someone may read, and it really does transmit it. And more than that, our light gives that illumination to help them understand what it is that causes them to stumble. And I'll be honest, this has been almost oppressive to me as I've been praying about it these past little weeks because I want this for my family, my, my, my family family, my extended family. I want my light, my wife's light, my son's light to shine so brightly, right, that it kills the germination of sin while it's so small, that it has the ability to amputate, metastasize ancient sin in my extended family, to melt hearts, Right? to display the gospel, to point back to Christ, and to illuminate what it is that causes them to stumble. If it's capable of doing all that, the next question is, why doesn't it? And I would think it goes back to Matthew 5, 16. It says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The key and the operative word here that saddens me is let, allow, permit, don't restrain. The only one that can restrain it, to use the dimmer switch, is me. The very definition of darkness, as we described, is the absence of power, the absence of energy, the absence of light. It can't overpower the light. It can only exist where the light removes itself or where it recedes. Okay? So that's why I think Jesus says, and I mean, why bring up this idea of neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket? Why would you even mention that except that we put it under a basket? I do. I know I do. What would it look like at work if I removed that mask and if I didn't use the dimmer switch? What, what portion of sin, of germinating sin, would be destroyed in, the people, in, in the li my life and the lives around me? How would I be able to deal with the metastasized sin of people that I love or people that just I work with? How many hearts would be melted if it was unrestrained, if I didn't put a basket on it? So, again, something that's been on my heart also is this idea of head knowledge and heart knowledge, about being able to practically apply whatever it is that we've been told about. So it tells us, it's at the back end of this, this uh, section, it says, walk circumspectly. This is the old translation of it, but it's the one that, that I memorized a long time ago, so I'm going to use it, and I like it. So it says, walk circumspectly, redeeming the time, and making the most of the time that you have. Then the second part, it says, do not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And what this does is this always reminds me of Marja, okay, in Afghanistan. If you ever go to Marja, it's like a completely flat area. And for those of you that were in the east part of uh, or RC East in Afghanistan, my heart goes out to you because they got mountains there. We ain't got no mountains down in Marja. What we had were these canals. So imagine a big chessboard, and all the squares are cut up by these canals. So every football field distance, it seemed like, you're crossing another one of these canals, right? And the problem is when you're carrying eight pounds of gear, crossing those canals for nine months starts to get old quick. So what do you start doing? You can kind of see here. You start crossing where it's easy, right? Who's watching? Yeah, the Taliban's watching. They're not stupid. Guess where? They can't put, they don't have enough IEDs to cover every square inch. Guess where they're going to put it? They're going to put victim-activated pressure plate IEDs every place that you're going to cross, right? And if you are not walking circumspectly, right, redeeming the timing, paying close attention, you're not going to find it. Why? Because even with the mine detectors, they use carbon rods from the batteries so that they can make a connection, but it's non-metallic. You can't tell it's there. The only way you can see it is by seeing it. 
And the only way that we could observe it was you see this little hook here. So you'd walk up, and you'd have to scrape the left and right-hand sides trying to expose the wires that leads to the battery pack that sets off the charge when you step on it. The point is, let's go to general order number one. You guys, anybody that's been in theater knows general order number one. And that's this idea that things that are permissible in the Western society, you're not allowed to do over there, and why aren't you allowed to do it? Well, number one, because of it, it might offend Muslim sensibilities, specifically alcohol. The interesting thing is, it ends up being a good thing. Right? It says, do not get drunk. The Bible never says, don't drink at all. But if you're in a spiritual battle, if we're in a spiritual battle, if there's a chance that I'm going to step on a 40-pound pressure plate IED and be vaporized, it seems wise to not get drunk. Right? It just, that's just what it seems like. I mean, it's difficult spotting it sober. Right? How much more difficult when you're drunk? And if this, is, if this really is spiritual warfare, then it seems prudent. To, to take that into account when we drink. But then it takes all the way to the other end, and it says, instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God for everything in the name of Jesus Christ. So I rely heavily on John Stott um, a lot of times for doing the studies or to get ready for this. Great guy, but he, again, he mentions in this one, he's like, well, this one's exclusively... Um, focused on date on worship in the church, and I was like, I, you know, that was one where I kind of departed. What he, I'm not really sure I agree with him on it. And specifically, it makes me think of Acts 16, where it talks about they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them in the marketplace to face the authorities. The crowd joined into the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them stripped and beaten with rods. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he, he put them in an inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And we know the story. There's an earthquake, and they're freed, and then the jailer comes in, and he gets saved. And we know that their backs must have been laid open because they had to clean their wounds. Okay? So the point is they're sitting probably in their own filth because you can't get up and use the bathroom if your feet are in stocks. Right? They're sitting in their own filth, backs torn open, pussing, probably getting infected right there, in this absolutely dark cell because it's an inner cell. And what are they doing? They're singing hymns to God. That, that troubles me. You know? Because it says, instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to each other with songs and hymns. Do I do that every day? I've got cause to do that every day. I've got reason right now to do it. And here's what's even more amazing to me. And this is kind of convicting to me. So it's out of my favorite book, extra biblical book, outside the Bible, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. I only like the first chapter, so everything after that's kind of a waste because it's a bunch of Christians killing Christians, right? But the second martyr, James the Greatest, says, Fox ca captures, as James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostle's extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Now, that convicts me because in some way, James's Christian death was more attractive than his pagan life. What saddens me and what I hope is that our Christian, my Christian life, 
is more attractive than current pagan death. And I think that's the need for us to shine the light of Christ everywhere we go. So, this is not the tr- these are not the uh, discussion questions, but they are the answers. So, if you've got a couple chances, you can quickly write them down. Okay, these are the, que- the discussion questions. How do we restrain our light in public? Why? And how does the world get us to do that? And then the second one. Which would make you more uncomfortable, telling an off-color joke in a large group of your fellow employees or talking about Jesus Christ? Okay? And I'm putting this up there for, this. obviously this is generated from somewhere, you know, with, with questions of my own heart. And which are the deeds that are not necessarily evil, but are nevertheless fruitless and that take away time from Christ? All right, thanks. Thanks.